back in Matthew. I think you all know that now. And uh, so open your Bibles to Matthew 15. Does that sound right? I hope so, because that's where I studied this week. So Matthew 15. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I was reading an article this morning that came across my feed, and it was by the Gospel Coalition. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of them. They put out a lot of material. Pretty good stuff. And it was an article about uh, an ongoing perpetual um, archaeological site in uh, Egypt. And so two dudes in like the 1890s uh, came across this, this place that became a dig uh, in Egypt. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the area. It's Oxy something, and I've never heard of it, and I, I'm just going to butcher it. So they, they came across this place, and they basically uncovered what was a town dump. And uh, they came across a ton of papyrus. Like, like so many, that was in 1890, we're still excavating that same site today and pulling stuff out of there. And what they recently pulled out were uh, copies of Matthew, copies of Luke, and a full copy of Mark that dates earlier than anything that we have. This article's brand new. And I just want you guys to know that everything that's in those early discoveries just now match exactly what you and I use to get our English New Testaments. We can absolutely, positively trust everything that we have in our hands today, regardless of what people try to claim. It's legit. And God just shows us over and over again with digs like this and things that are ongoing, the more that we uncover and the more that we discover that this word that we have is trustworthy. Like the game of telephone wasn't played and then lost. Like the game of telephone was played and won because God protects his word. So I just want you to know that. Like what, what a cool thing that we have in our hands, in our laps. So like make sure you open a lot. <laughs> make sure you, you know, regard it highly in your life and you, and you travel it uh, well. Matthew chapter 15. I'm going to read this. I, I know it seems kind of weird because I always like to read my text first and then go back. But I, I really like to read it how it is there. I think that's part of why I like to do it, set the stage how it's written, and then we'll go back and pull it apart a little bit, all right? So Matthew chapter 15, um, starting in verse 1. This is going to be an interesting section. I mean, they all are, but come on. The Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them, why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother, they must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, these people honor me with their lips, but with their hearts Uh, But their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. And Jesus called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. And then the disciples came and said to him, uh, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And Jesus said, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Leave them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And Peter said to him, Explain the parable to us. 
And Jesus said, Are you also still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. I wish I would have, like, known this when I was a kid. You know what I mean? (laughs) This text and, like, been versed in it, you know? Um, I want to recap real quick the characters, like the main players in, in the Jesus narrative, the Jesus story, the gospel story, up to this point. Okay, kind of the main guys. Uh, we have the scribes. And uh, the scribes were people whose entire job was to uh, protect, basically, the once-for-all word of God. It was to protect it from being tainted, from being added to, from it being, uh, having stuff removed from it. It was to preserve and protect the word of God. And so they were constantly looking at scriptures and copying scriptures, right? They knew them, but in that, the scribes would also sit around and discuss the interpretation of these scriptures that they were protecting. Namely, mostly like the law. So these guys ended up becoming hair splitters. They were really good at splitting hairs, on what God meant when he said that, and what he meant when he said this. And in that, they ended up creating a multitude of new laws due to their discussions of God's law. And this is known now to us as the oral law. Okay, This is what we refer to it as. So we had those guys. Then we had the Pharisees. Does anyone know what Pharisee means? Separated. That's what it means. It means separated or separatists. So these were exclusively religious people. They were separated to be exclusively religious. And this actually kind of started out decent back in the day, like being separated from foreign influence and being separated from the world. But it ended up being uh, the, the fault of them just thinking they were better than everybody else. And that's kind of what we have here in the narrative. When we see these guys in that, they were hair splitters too. Right along with the scribes. Uh, Three, we have the Sadducees. The Sadducees were basically uh, like social aristocrats. Uh, They were socially minded people, never wanting to come down completely on a position, never wanting to rock the boat, right? Like never wanting to really land or stand on something uh, socially definitive. And so in that, when the early church started in the book of Acts, these guys, the Sadducees actually became kind of pests to the church even though they're kind of quiet in the Gospels, because the church stood, everything hinged with the church on the resurrection. And they just thought that was socially silly. It wasn't something they were going to buy into or stand on. So they used to kind of be a little bit of pests to the church. Four, we have the Herodians. You guys ever heard of these guys? The Herodians were basically the nationalists of the day. They were Jewish political opportunists. And so what they did is they sided with Herod and his desire to make Israel great again. That's who these people were. They wore the shirts, they flew the flags, you know what I mean? They were at every rally, like that, that's who these guys were. Um, and so like they were behind Herod to make Israel great again, whether it be with his temple campaign or whether it be uh, with, with Herod's like various ways of getting in bed with the Roman government in order to get what he wanted, in order to prosper. So they were like Herod loyalists. They were political loyalists to Herod. 
And then five, this other group that we have that Jesus created, uh, we have this group called hypocrites. And uh, what a hypocrite was back in the day was what we would call an actor. It's what they called an actor. Okay? So today you and I can look at someone like uh, DiCaprio or Tom Cruise or whatever, and we can see their face. We know who they are in different movies as they play different characters. But back then, an actor always had a mask. So they, they obviously we didn't have the silver screen. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, you know, we didn't have film. Uh, they would actually put on a mask, and that would become their persona. That's how they would act. Okay, and Jesus gave this title to a lot of people during his earthly ministry of hypocrites or actors. And when we get to uh, chapter twenty-three, like th- it's going to be super heavy. Like his use of uh, this word. Hypocrites, they weren't just this group of people or that group of people. They were, they were basically uh, any group of people that he was addressing at the moment um, where, uh, depending on what they were talking about and what they were acting like. Okay? And so for today, it's going to end up being uh, the scribes and the Pharisees that he calls hypocrites. Okay, Verses 1 and 2. We're going to move through this pretty quick, but we're going to pick it apart a little bit. The Pharisees came, uh, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem, and they said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. The first thing that we notice um, is that these guys are now traveling great distances to get to Jesus. Like, they're, they're, they're going a long way. They're going to a lot of trouble to incriminate Jesus, because it says just prior to this in 14 that, that Jesus is now in uh, Gennesaret. And if you look at Gennesaret on a map as compared to Jerusalem, it's about 90 miles from Jerusalem. So these dudes just went like 90 miles to go to him. And by the way, Jesus very rarely went looking for trouble. Trouble always found him. Like trouble always found Jesus. So, so Gennesaret here, where Jesus is at this point, is like 90 miles from Jerusalem, and they didn't have cars, they didn't have trains, they didn't have planes, right? They didn't have scooters, they didn't have skate, like, like, it took work to get there. It took time to get there. It took meals to get there. Like, it, 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 it was a trek, and, and, and it is a trek that is made exclusively by these guys to confront Jesus on this all-important question why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? This, you know what I'm saying? Like it seems ridiculous, right? Like almost 100 miles, one way on foot, to challenge Jesus as to why his disciples don't wash up before eating. And like this tells us a lot about these guys. You know what I'm saying? Um, one of the reasons that this is so ridiculous is because what it is that they're challenging Jesus on here has to do with the oral law, the laws that the scribes put together. The oral law was a law of tradition, and they know that. They even acknowledge that here, right? Um, Not a command of God or what we would call the written law. All right. The oral law were legal interpretations, like I already said, of the written law by the scribes to expound on and split the hairs of how we're supposed to follow the laws that God has written down. And in that, these guys wrote more, right? And so what they kind of did is they actually kind of, they kind of viewed the oral law as a fence 
if you will, around God's law. And the reason that they put up the fence of the oral law is they didn't want, the idea was so that people wouldn't get too close to God's law as to break it. So they actually just like built these extensions <laughs> that you had to go through first in order to get to and break God's law. It's, it's kind of weird and it's really dumb because like at the end of the day, it didn't keep anyone from breaking God's laws. It just gave everyone more laws to break, right? And this is what these guys were really good at. You know, giving out, handing out more laws to break. One of them was the washing of hands. Okay? Um, I mean, after all, I, I was raised this way. Some of you might have been like, nothing makes you more godly than properly washing your hands before you eat. And we all know that, right? Uh, my mom gave my daughter a towel when she was young that said, wash your hands and say your prayers because Jesus and germs are everywhere. Right? Did you ever hear something like that as a kid? Right? And it gives you the idea like, like oh my gosh, like if, I don't, if I don't wash my hands before I eat, like Jesus isn't going to be happy with me. You know? That's like the impression that it gives, which, which is absurd. Now, we all know that there were cleansings and there were washings that were implemented by God upon the Levitical priesthood when it came to their ceremonies, their temple ceremonies. But these guys were, were now imposing these laws that were from God to uh, the Levites on everybody now, on everyone. So, so this had very much to do with a ritual, what they were imposing, not so much to do with hygiene. Okay? So tradition, um, which is kind of a self-imposed religion. And so they travel 90 miles to ask the question, why do you transgress the tradition of the elders? To which Jesus responds, verse 3, why do you transgress the commandment of God for your traditions? And this is really what we would call a mic drop, okay? I know it may not sound that heavy to us, but his response here is extremely heavy. Um, and just so you guys know, like, don't, don't fight with Jesus. It's just never a good idea. He's always going to make you look stupid and foolish. He, like, I don't know how well you know your Gospels, but like the, the way that he responds, his comebacks to when people know that they have him trapped are just humiliating. But, like, you just don't argue with him, all right? Um, I still try to sometimes, and it never goes well. I just open up the Bible, and it's like, okay, you know, <laughs> like I, I'm done. So uh, uh, this is actually a good question, the one that Jesus fires back at these guys, and one that is even worth asking for you and I today. It's even one worth you and I answering today, because there are many in the church today who place tradition above a clear and a clean exposition of Scripture. It goes on all the time. It always has since the beginning of the church. And if we go by what we're reading here with Jesus and these guys and what Jesus is saying, this can be a dangerous thing to place tradition above a clear exposition of what Scripture says. R.C. Sproul said, religion without faith is a deadly thing. Um, because the reason it's a deadly thing is because it only has to do with appearance, like not reality. It's not a reality. Whether we're talking about something like, and I don't want to make anybody mad, but I'm going to go ahead and throw these things out there anyway. Whether we're talking about something like infant baptism, which has been around since the beginning of the church age, 
And when you ask for scriptures, someone throws out one scripture in Acts where it says, you and your household be saved. And I'm sorry, but that's not a clear exposition for infant baptism. There's a ton of assumptions that have to be made there. And yet this is a tradition that we've held throughout church history by the big churches, by the orthodox churches. Why? Because we've always done it that way. It's tradition, right? Uh, We can say the same thing about transubstantiation in communion, which means that the wine, which we're going to do, and the bread actually becomes Christ re-crucified. That actually becomes his blood every time we do it, and that actually becomes his body on the cross every time we do it, meaning that he's on the cross every time we do it. And this is rubbish, and it's unbiblical. However, it's a tradition that goes all the way back. It's something that major Orthodox churches hold to, right? Even church being the ultimate authority, rather than the Scripture, Right? This was the cry of the reformers, sola scriptura. This is one of the things that they were, where they were calling out the Catholic Church at the time and saying, enough of this tradition. The Bible says this. Scripture is our ultimate authority. Scripture is my ultimate authority. Scripture is your ultimate authority, not some dude with a funny white hat in Rome. Right? Because he's changing things all the time. He's changing what the church can do and can't do all the time. This is what we're talking about here. I guess I didn't need to go into all that, but you're welcome, all right? (laughs) Just because something has been done, or it's been around, or it's been practiced for a long time does not mean that it's of God, or that God approves of it. I just want you to know that, okay? It just means that it's been practiced for a long time. That's all it means. Time itself does not equate to right doctrine. We go sideways super fast. You read 1 Corinthians lately? Right? This is one of the earliest churches, one of the earliest actual letters that we have, date-wise, where Paul went and, he, and uh, uh, he planted a church there. And he taught these guys the gospel there and got the church going. And then we have him almost immediately writing 1 Corinthians, the letter of 1 Corinthians, which is, if you look at it, all corrections about how they're already going sideways. It's like, that was just there. Like, I just taught you these things. You know what I mean? One of them being major, by the way. The resurrection, chapter 15. They're already questioning and going sideways with their doctrine, their thoughts, their theology on the resurrection. It happens quick, guys. And, and you and I, we're just, we cannot trust ourselves. We need to trust something better than ourselves. That's why we have a preserved word of God and people still mining the truth and the accuracy of it out of some place in Egypt. <laughs> we, we need our Bibles, not what we think or what we feel or what everybody else around us is telling us, right? So we need to hold fast to this. This is what we're talking about. Verses 4 through 6, we're never going to get through this if we don't get through it. Jesus goes on to say, For God commanded, Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, What you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father or his mother. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. The Jews had this thing at that time called korban. I know it sounds weird. I had to look it up. What in the world is that? It's a real thing. The Jews had this thing called korban. And korban meant dedicated to God or set apart for God. So this could be a chair. 
Or this could be a shirt or a piece of clothing. Or it could be a loaf of bread. I think you guys get the point. So, if your parents fell on hard times, and they came to you as a child, and they needed a chair, or they needed a piece of clothing, or they needed a loaf of bread, that child could cite korban and withhold that item because it was set apart or dedicated to God. This is what Jesus is talking about here. This is what he's calling these, these guys on. So, so korban is like selfish, or, or like code for being selfish jerks to your parents. That's, that's basically what it is. It, it was a scam to get out of the clear, plainly written fifth commandment of God, which says, honor your father and your mother. And apparently they were employing it quite often because Jesus here is straight up pulling their covers on it. Like it's something they were doing. So Jesus says this, like, you guys make the clear command of God of no effect due to your own traditions. Like, why do you esteem your traditions above God's word, is basically what Jesus says here. And the answer is typically like, well, well, we've always done it that way. You know what I mean? We've always done it that way, right? That's typically like the card played. Not just by these guys then, but again, even by many churches now, and pastors now, and Christians today. We must always be honest enough to ask ourselves, is what I'm doing holding to according to the scriptures, or is it just a convenient way of applying that which I prefer in my life? We all must ask ourselves this regularly. What Jesus has just done here is nothing short of a stern rebuke. Like what he has just said is heavy. Like you don't talk this way, especially in public with a ton of people watching to the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Like, this is, this is war. And we wonder why they wanted to kill him so bad, you know? This is why. But wait, there's more. <laughs> it gets better. Seven through nine, right? Jesus goes on, you hypocrites. You actors. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said this, people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus now shares something with them about them using their scriptures. Right? He now, ta- he, he now basically like walks past their subject of hand washing and moves to the subject of them. Of them. It's, it's, a, kind of, it's a personal attack. All right. He starts off by unloading both barrels by saying, actors, you hypocrites. Like, that's heavy. I once heard a preacher say, the Pharisees preached by the yard, they practiced by the inch, so Jesus gave them the foot. That's pretty rad. Like, he gave them a swift, powerful kick. Like every time they attempted this in front of him. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. Like he's giving them the foot. Because with these guys, it's all mouth, it's all words, and it's no heart. Like, like what they seek to live by is extremely mechanical. It's fully mechanical. Not natural. Not natural. So he comes out of the gate by calling them actors. And he follows this up by quoting from the prophet Isaiah and makes clear to them that when Isaiah said this, He's talking about you. Wow. That must have been something to to hear as a Pharisee. Like Isaiah was saying that about me. Crazy. They didn't care, obviously. 
this Isaiah quote that Jesus pulls out here is the very biblical definition. It's a perfect one of what hypocrisy is. Religious, spiritual hypocrisy. This is what it is. Right here. You speak as God followers. You appear as God followers. But you are not God followers. This is really what Isaiah is saying here. Actors only. Again, like, don't fight Jesus. Don't fight Jesus. This is just brutal. Verses 10 and 11. Jesus calls the people to him and he said to them, Hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Things are going to get a little crazy right now. Are you ready? Are you guys ready? All right. We don't know at this point, doesn't really matter whether the hypocrites scurried off into the shadows after he completely humiliated them in public, or just back to Jerusalem maybe at this point. But Jesus now turns his attention to the multitude, the populace that was present there that day to witness this momentous slapdown, right? And he tells them to come close, to come close, to pay close attention to what it is that he's about to say next. And this is where you and I need to be close also as we listen to this, because this is for us as well. This is not just for religious leaders living back in Jesus' day. This is something that's really important. This teaching, this truth, explains so much about us and the world that we live in, the world around us. It is not what goes into the mouth, Jesus says, that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. What this means is that you and I have a way bigger problem than we thought we did. We have a way bigger problem than we ever thought we did. What Jesus is revealing here flies in the face of everything that we tend to think and we believe about ourselves and about others. That being that we as human beings, we seem to think, we tend to think that by nature we're mostly good, we're mostly kind, we're mostly moral. That it can really kind of swing either way. We can tip the balance in any direction that we want. Sometimes I don't please God, sometimes I do. This is how we tend to think of ourselves and human beings in general. And, and, and so in that, we tend to think that the longer we live, the more we get contaminated by that which is around us, by that which is outside of us. Those things, these things out here, not, not in here, these things out here, as you go through life longer and you live on this earth longer, corrupt us. We tend to place the problem on that which is outside of us. We blame outward things for our inward challenges. We look at this and we go, this is bad. Or we look over here and we go, that is bad. Or we look over here and we go, they caused me to do it. You know what I mean? Like, like that person made me react that way. That circumstance forced me to respond that way. Satan made me do it. Right? We play the blame game. But Jesus here is making a clear declaration that that which already resides within us, is the problem. It is the true source of evil. In other words, we have nothing and no one to blame but ourselves for our defilement. For instance, money is the root of evil. Is that what it says? But when we say it that way, it sounds rad, right? Because it makes it look like money's the problem. 
Like that object is the problem. You ever heard people misquote it like that? Like probably on purpose a lot of times. Money is the root of evil. Yep, money's bad. It corrupted you. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. What does that do? It, t- it takes that pointer finger and goes like this. The love, that which is in us, the way that we approach it, the way that we look at it, is the problem. Not the object outside of us, the desire, the connection inside of us toward that object is the issue, right? This is biblical anthropology 101, right? So you guys know. And I think, I think you guys do understand this. This is anthropology according to the Bible. It's not fun to hear, but it is helpful to know. We are not neutral. We are not able to turn on the righteous switch in our lives if we choose to so that we can, play God, or so that we can please God. We are opposed to him due to that which already exists in us. This is a heavy indictment that Jesus is making, and the disciples know it. So they come to him, and they say, verse 12... Then, uh, the, uh, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Like, man, did you know that like, what you said like, totally set them off? Right? So, so they're like super curious right now about how Jesus, what Jesus' thoughts are on how that whole interaction went down. It's kind of funny. Um, question for you guys. Do you guys think that Jesus knew he was offending them? Okay. <laughs> yeah, he, he totally did. He, like, like, like Jesus knew like he was going for the jugular even when he responded the way that he did, right? Um, of course he meant to offend them. Um, it was his intent. It was his intent. Not because Jesus takes pleasure in being a jerk towards other people, but because with Jesus, truth reigns. Truth reigns, always. There's this popular shirt that people wear these days. I don't know if you've seen it. And um, it's basically, it says really big on the front, choose, choose love, right? And I'm sure that you know within the context what that means. I mean, that, that looks really good, but we all know what's meant by that, which is like accept and champion everything that everybody chooses to believe or you're a hater, right? That's basically what the shirt means by the people that are wearing it, choose love, right? Um, but we could almost, we could almost imagine that like, if Jesus were living today, his shirt would say, choose truth really big on the front. And then maybe you could even add onto the back, like, because truth is love. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, this is what we see with Jesus. Um, it, 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 this world that we find our, ourselves living in today is not new. It's not unique. I know that people are getting more offended by things that we say than maybe they did 20 years ago. But this has always been a thing where people have been majorly offended (laughs) by hearing things they don't want to hear, guys. That's not a new trick. That's not not a new form of Satan's tactic. That's something that's always been there. Truth hurts those who hate the truth. That's just the truth. (laughs) All right? Um, We live in a world where verbal offense is the biggest trigger for people, right, right now. Truth-telling, it's the biggest evil, the biggest expression of hate, all the while in reality being the greatest expression of love when it's done in love. And this is where you and I have work to do, and we have examination that needs to take place when we approach people. 
It, it doesn't just matter that we're speaking truth. It also matters how we speak truth. That's not my opinion. That's what I see in Christ and I see in my scriptures. Like, we use love when we do it. But you can mark this down. One of the true marks of the hypocrite is that they will always be offended by the truth. That's just one of their marks. It's just one of their characteristics. I can promise you that Jesus was not into abuse. Like, he was not into abuse. He was into truth. And because he was about truth-telling, there was a lot of offense that was going around back in his day, ultimately leading to his murder. Verse 13, Jesus answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. I don't know about you, what comes to my mind when I read this is the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? Uh, We were just there two chapters ago, Matthew chapter 13. Jesus goes through a string of kingdom parables. One of them is like, this, this, this guy, this master that has a field, and we, of course, know as we read through it to the interpretation that field is the world. And that master went into that field and he planted wheat. He goes away. His servants go out one day. They see, they see everything puncturing the ground. It's, it's moving through the surface, and they're going, oh, my goodness, like, there's not just wheat in this field. There's weeds. They go to the master, and he's like, yeah, leave them. We'll deal with them. It's just a, but it's a clear-cut reality of what's going on right now in our reality of living on earth is there's two ultimately different sets of people. Even in the church, those who God has planted and those who God has not planted, right? And so he's using this language here, making sure that his disciples uh, hear this. Um, But what he wants them to know for sure is that in God's field exists the true and the false, the from God and the not from God, the planted by God and the planted not by God. And the in for those who have not been planted by God, it says here, will be an uprooting by God. That's where it's going to end. They're going to be uprooted by God. Right? This is why preaching the gospel matters so much, guys. We don't know who these people are. This is the catch. We don't know who the good is, who the bad is, who the wheats are, who the weeds are. So we preach Jesus to every creature, imploring them to repent and to believe by faith because Jesus is their only hope. We want to see people saved, not uprooted. But those who are not of God will be uprooted. It's going to be a crazy day. And uh, Jesus' conclusion for these guys um, that act like they've been planted by God, these scribes and these Pharisees, but don't belong to God, his, his conclusion of them for his disciples is leave them alone. Leave them alone. Verse 14, let them alone. They are blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Leave them alone means stay away from them. That's what it means. Stay away from them. This does not mean do not love them. It doesn't mean don't share the gospel with them. It doesn't mean don't have any relational interactions with them whatsoever. Otherwise, what would this mean with family members that you and I have? Parents, kids, right? It it doesn't mean that. It means do not follow them. Do not follow what they teach. Do not follow what they do. Do not follow what they believe. Right? Why? Because they're blind guides, they cannot see, and if they cannot see, they will lead you off the same cliff that they're walking off of. This is why we care so much 
as your pastors here about what you're listening to and what you're reading and where you're spending your time, right? Like, like just because somebody's a good talker um, and they seem to have a lot of knowledge about their Bible and they have a really big popular church does not mean that they're not feeding you a false bill of goods. Like it's all over the place now. We need to be really careful about what we listen to and what we open ourselves up to because there's a lot, a lot of blind guides out there today, guys. A lot of them. There's a lot of good churches too. You just gotta, just gotta sniff them out, do the legwork. So this is why we care about this. Verse 15, keep moving. Peter says to him, explain the parable to us. So, so Peter's like, finally, like, look, can we get, can we get back to like talking about food? Like, can, can we get back to eating? Uh, like, what goes into the mouth? This is the parable that Peter's referring to. What goes into the mouth does not defile, but what comes out defiles. And it's really interesting when you think about this, because, like, Peter's this dude that if we fast forward a little bit, the future Peter, like, uh, he's going to be this guy in Acts chapter 10 that has a dream about what's clean and unclean. Right? Do you remember that? Like Cornelius is sent down by God, which is like a dude from the centurion from the Italian cohort. He's a total Gentile. And like God says, go down and see Peter. And Peter at that time, along with the other apostles, the main pillars in Jerusalem, were tripping out on the fact that Gentiles were like, okay, that they actually could and should be saved, that Jesus was actually doing something with him. And so he gets that dream of the sheet that drops down with all the meat. And, of course, Peter thinks he's rad, and he's like, I ain't eating that stuff. And God's like, why are you calling what I call clean unclean? Like, what's your problem? Right? And then all of a sudden there's a knock on the door, and it's Cornelius. Like, if he hadn't had that dream, if he hadn't had that interaction with the Lord right then, like, he would have sent Cornelius away just for being a Gentile. He would have been like, yeah, you're not coming in here. We're not talking. Right? So he had, like, this later, like, lesson on uh, being clean and, and unclean. But Peter's like, hey, like, can we get back to whether I need to clean up or not like, before I eat? And Jesus is like, you're a bit dense, are you? Right? But like, okay, he says that in 15, basically. That, that's my words. Actually, 16. Uh, he says, uh, explain to the parable to us. And Jesus says, are you also still without understanding? Now, let's just read this out. Okay? 17. Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is, is expelled? Interesting picture. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anybody. So Jesus goes on here to, uh, to explain the parable. And I'm just going to sum this up in a couple ways. First off, when Jesus says the word heart, he's not talking about the organ that pumps blood. I think most of you know that now. You've probably been reading your Bibles long enough to catch that. When he says the word heart, he's not talking about the organ that pumps blood. What Jesus is speaking to is that which makes us us. That which makes you you. The mind, the thoughts, the intentions, the motives, the desires, the passions, the will. The makeup of that within us which brings forth that which comes out of us. That's what Jesus means when he says heart. 
Proverbs 23.7 says, For as a man thinks, so he is in his heart. That's where that comes from. And again, heart's not that organ. It's the makeup, right, that gives us our thoughts, the thoughts that we have. So we're, talk, we're talking about this thing that's the command center of the human being inside of us. It's basically the headquarters of our character and our personality and our being. When Jeremiah says the heart is desperately wicked, who can know it? He's not speaking of the organ. He's speaking of the mind and the thoughts and the intention and the motives and the desires and the passions and the will of man, that which makes us us. Again, this is a post-fall biblical anthropology of man. All of them. All of them. Except for one, the guy that's talking right here. Right? Jesus is making clear to us that man's greatest problem is not outside of us. It is inside of us. If that is true, how then are we able to fix it? How do we deal with this thing? How do we overcome this problem? How do you escape it? If who I am, at my very essence, is the problem, how do I escape it? How do you run from it? Right? Like, how do you protect yourself? How do you protect your kids? Homeschool? Wherever you go, there you are. Even your children. Now, I actually think homeschooling is good. But it ain't going to guarantee you anything. Because what's wrong with your kid is not ultimately what's outside of them. It's what's inside of them. And I wish I would have known this better when I was a younger parent. Because I misparented my kids in so many moralistic, legalistic ways that it disgusts me. I wish I had a better gospel understanding of the issue so that I could have trained and spoken that properly into my kids when they were younger. Wherever you go, there you are. How do you hide from something that's inside of you? How do you safeguard from that? How do you combat it? How do you stay pure? If the problem is in you, if it is you, how do you produce and bring forth godliness from this thing, right? This is why the doctrine of depravity matters so much in understanding everything else in our Bibles. So much. This is why things like the banning of guns is such a futile solution. It does nothing. Because the gun itself is not the primary issue. That is superficial. The heart of the one holding the gun is the problem. It is the problem. Cain murdered Abel with a rock. More accurate still, Cain murdered Abel with his heart. With his heart. If it hadn't been there, it never would have been there. You know what I'm saying? Again, our sinfulness is always looking for someone else to blame. Something else to blame. Other than ourselves, because we do not want it to be true that the problem of evil is with us. But it is. Jesus tells us so. We are the problem. We are the ones to blame for that which defiles. And he wants us to know this so that we might stop looking to ourselves, you ready? As the solution. Education is the solution, the world tells us, right? Education, education. They just didn't know enough. They weren't properly educated. They they just need to know more. If they knew more, they'd be better people. They'd make better decisions, right? This is what we hear all the time in the world that we live in. 
behavior modification, right, is the solution. They just need some pills and they just need, you know, to level out and equalize a little bit, right? Their behavior will get better. Self-help therapy is the solution. Self-esteem, we just need more self-esteem. We just need to think highly of ourselves, right? That's the solution. That which makes us happy is the solution. This is the big one, even in the church. Cannot believe it. I cannot believe it when I hear Christians play this card. It's all about my happiness. No, it is not. That will lead you to deep, dark places. You will hurt yourself and others. Even if you're a Pharisee, it could mean that we're just going to buckle down more on our self-discipline. And that's going to be the solution. As if we can do such a thing, right? Jesus, in a way, is saying here, without getting too gross... What comes out of a man is far more disgusting than that which we can possibly put into a man. Or, what man expels from his heart is far more disgusting than what the body expels into the sewer. This is what he's saying. What, what man expels from his heart is far more disgusting than that which the body puts into the sewer. Your diet is not what defines you. It's not what makes you dirty or clean. Your heart is. And this is what the actors refuse to come to terms with. They refuse. Thus the conclusion, the moral of the story, verse 20, right? These, what the heart produces, are what defile a person, but to eat with unwashed hands does not. That's the conclusion. So here's the good news. Our diet or our etiquette in preparation to eat cannot disqualify us from God. Like, that's rad. You know, um, the bad news is that our hearts already do. <laughs> so, like, there's not a lot we can do about that. Um, and how do you wash that? You know what I mean? At least we can go wash hands. Like, how do you wash your heart? Right? Like, everybody's guilty. Not just those who don't wash their hands. Like, all of us are busted. This is what Jesus is saying. We are all busted. You can be a clean-handed vegan. You can be a clean-handed carnivore. You can be a clean-handed junk food junkie, right? But all are a dirty-handed human, spiritually, before God. Jesus is just, I don't know why he offended people. makes no sense. We are all spiritually anemic due to our already unsanitary hearts. We're all in the same boat Contrary to what the scribes and the Pharisees thought, contrary to what the world that you and I live in and the people around us tell us, we're all in the same boat, and that boat is sinking. Okay? So question, if the problem lies with us, where do we find the solution? Praise God. It is the one in their midst sharing this bad news with them that is the solution. Right? God... God through Christ is saying the whole time, like, look over here. Don't look inside. Don't, don't look there. Look over here. Look out here. Look at my son. Because he alone is untainted. He alone is holy. He alone is healing. God's proclamation in the gospel of his son is that Jesus is the only one that can perform the heart transplant that you and I desperately need. He's the only one who can wash that, who can reach that, who can cleanse that which is why we do what we're about to do. That's what this table reminds us of every time we come. Oh, wait, my, my heart is not what it used to be. It's been cleansed. It's been washed. 
It's been changed. Everything that was the problem has been redeemed because of Christ. This is what, Ashley, I believe you were talking about earlier in praise and prayer time. Praise God that this is a reality, that Christ has, has provided us with that which is necessary and we were unable to provide for ourselves. That's what this table is. He hung body broken where you should have. And he spilled blood where it should have been yours so that we might be made right with God. The solution is not here. The problem is. But praise God that he has sent a solution. It's Jesus Christ, his son, the savior of the world. The savior of the world. This is why we're here today and we have all cause to rejoice. Jesus obviously doesn't go there here, but you guys know the rest of the story. This is exactly what Jesus is building into with everything that he's teaching. He doesn't give it away here, but all of this is being built in so that when it happens, the light goes on to those who are being saved. Like, oh, that's what this is. You and I get to look back and we're just blessed. We have the whole story intact. We don't have to try to figure things out or put things together like we know the good news in full. So enjoy it today as you come to the table, right? Lord God, thank you so much for your son. Thank you that you didn't just come to earth to say, you guys are doomed. But you also came to give us a solution for that damnation. And so we praise your holy name for chasing after us, for seeking us, for initiating a redemptive work for us, even though we never would have done it with you. We thank you that your blood fully cleanses, not partially, not kind of, and not just today or tomorrow, but maybe not next week, that it's finished. When you hung there and you did what you did, you said, it is finished. And so we thank you that we are forever clean in your eyes and in your presence because of this act that involved your body and your blood. And it's in your name that we are grateful and that we are amazed and that we worship and that we come to this table now. Amen.